man, I don't know if I've ever had somebody turn the tables on me on my own show. That's quite impressive. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. I like your answer. I hope it's popular. Yeah, well, yeah, I hope so too. But yeah, it's... Here's a crazy stat. Recent research by Bont et al. suggests that roughly one in four adults will suffer from chronic knee pain, and its prevalence has increased almost 65% over the past 20 years. And along those same lines, McNerney and Arendt state that roughly 30% of young athletes suffer from anterior knee pain, with female athletes being anywhere from two to 10 times more likely to struggle with knee issues than their male counterparts. So regardless of whether you're training gin pop clients or athletes of any shape and size. The fact of the matter is knee issues are on the rise. And as trainers, coaches, and rehab professionals, we have to arm ourselves with better information about the knee to help our people move and feel better. And that's why I'm so excited to bring Dr. Ebony Rio on the podcast today. Dr. Rio is a postdoc researcher at La Trobe University and has completed her PhD in tendon pain. Her professional career has included time at the Australian Institute of Sport, Australian Ballet Company, Australian Ballet School, Melbourne Heart Football Club, Alfington Sports Medicine Center, and the Victorian Institute of Sport. But what's even cooler is that she's played a vital role in prepping athletes for the 2006 Commonwealth Games, 2010 Vancouver Winter Olympics, 2010 Singapore Youth Olympics, 2012 London Paralympics, and spent 18 months traveling with Disney's The Lion King stage show. So needless to say, Ebony is an absolute boss, and I am really pumped to talk to her here today. Now, if you're a regular to the show, welcome back. As always, love and appreciate you. And if you're new here, welcome. I'm Mike Robertson, and this is the Physical Preparation Podcast. In this show, we take deep dives into the art and science of coaching, cueing, program design, business, and personal development. Basically, anything to help you become a better trainer, coach, or rehab professional. Now, as someone that has had knee issues in the past, I've always been a little bit more interested in the knee than other joints. And now that I've spent the last 10 to 15 years working around professional athletes in soccer and basketball, I feel like that interest has been really well served. But that's also why I wanted Ebony to come on this show. She's someone I've already learned a ton from, and I just knew her insights would make all of us better coaches and practitioners. So to begin the show, we start by talking about the differences between patellofemoral pain and patellar tendinopathy. It's really important to start with the right diagnosis as the treatments have some significant differences. From there, we take deep dives into both worlds. For instance, how do you train someone with patellar tendinopathy versus someone with patellofemoral pain? what's in and what's out of each of their respective programs. And then to bring the whole thing together, we talk about some global overarching principles that you can use with almost any client or athlete you train. For instance, why is the soleus such an important muscle for knee health and why did we learn nothing about it in college? What role can isolation or machine-based training for the calves, hamstrings, and quads play in keeping someone healthy? And last but not least, we talk about the role of strength and asymmetries in rehab and how to build a solid return to play protocol for your athletes that are dealing with knee issues. Kind of like Courtney last week, Ebony was such a joy to talk to. She's incredibly smart, 
well-spoken, and she even turned the tables on me a little bit at the end of the show, so I think you'll enjoy that part. But regardless, if you want to learn more about knees, I know you're going to love this episode. So we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll jump into this awesome new show with Dr. Ebony Rio. Did you know that in any given year, 40% of the trainers and coaches in our industry will leave our industry? Maybe that's why it seems like almost every day I talk to trainers and coaches who are frustrated. Maybe they're frustrated with the results they're getting. Maybe they're frustrated because they don't have trusted resources to learn from. And maybe they're frustrated because they simply don't have enough clients and wonder how long they'll be able to stay in the industry. So if this sounds anything like you, let me tell you how I can help. My Complete Coach Certification was created for trainers and coaches just like you. People who are serious about the results they get and know that becoming a better coach can directly translate to a bigger bottom line. This certification is going to take the last 20 plus years of my life's work and put it all into one massive course. In the cert, you'll learn how to use my R7 system to create seamless, integrated, and efficient programs for clients and athletes of all shapes and sizes. You'll learn the exact progressions, regressions, and coaching cues I use in the gym to help your clients squat, hinge, press, and pull with awesome technique. You'll learn my streamlined assessment process that will help you determine the exact movements your clients should be performing when they come in the gym. And last but not least, you'll learn how to create relationships and build rapport with virtually everyone you train so you can get the best possible results. Of course, there's a lot more that I cover, but that should give you a pretty good idea of what the CERT is all about. Now here's the thing, spots for the CERT only open twice per year for a limited time. But if you join my free insiders list now, you'll be able to save $200 when my next group opens. To get on the insiders list, just head over to completecoachcertification.com. Again, that's completecoachcertification.com and then stay tuned for our launch emails very soon. Thank you so much for your support and I hope you'll join us when the next complete coach certification launches. Ebony, thank you so much for coming on the show here today. It's a real pleasure to have you on. Could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Thank you so much for the invitation. Uh, So I am a passionate clinician clinician researcher. So what I mean by that is I I love being both. I split my time between still being a physio and uh, doing research that hopes to improve clinical practice and and help people on the ground because I'm still someone at the coalface by choice. So I'm the Senior Clinical Research Fellow at the Australian Ballet. So I get to run um, the research that we do within the company to benefit dance and to benefit sport and the general community and try and have lots of crossover. And I also treat the dancers, which is super fun. They're amazing athletes. And I also work at the Victorian Institute of Sport. So I look after a number of athletes there and co-chair the research council. So we've recently set up research there as well. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to merge the worlds of research and clinical practice because um, I think they've sat separate for too long. Yes. Yes. Well, I mean, <laughs> it doesn't sound like you're very busy then, right? I mean, you've only got like three or four <laughs> like full-time jobs, it sounds like, right? 
just, you know, everyone's busy and you just juggle different things. I, I yes. joke around with my kids, actually, that I have a full-time job doing laundry and I just squeeze in some physio when I can. <laughs> yes, I uh, classify myself as a uh, professional Uber driver for my kids right now. I just drive them all Brilliant. over to and from practices. So, well, The problem is if you were an Uber driver, you'd get paid. So you're actually... This is true. I'm, I'm definitely not, not doing well in that regard. So... But I'm, I'm interested, like what brought you into the world of physical preparation? How did you get started in all this? So um, I love sport. I still play basketball and awesome. I did af I did athletics growing up and I just, I just love sport and I've always appreciated dance and movement and I just, I just love it. And so I think I always wanted to be a physio and then I did human movement before physio, which gave me a really good grounding in sort of exercise prescription. And I've always thought physios should be better at physical preparation mm -hmm. and, you know, really have in our toolkit the ability to, you know, speak the same language as strength and conditioning and coaching and, and really, you know, make sure we're all working together. Because at the end of the day, you know, if we talk something like tendons, so much is about the preparation and the capacity. And if we can get that right um, in terms of, you know, trying to reduce the risk of tendinopathy, but also it's the key to actually the management. So physical preparation for me is the is the cornerstone of, of where all of our worlds meet. That's mm -hmm. the bit I like. Yeah, absolutely. And then last but not least, a lot of the people listening to this show are maybe young, right? They're getting started in the industry or they're considering a career in the industry. You've got a very unique background and again trying to merge research and practice and you're you're still in there doing things every single day would you mind sharing with us your career path a little bit maybe your education your stops along the way just so people can understand kind of the the progression that you've gone through absolutely so at high school um i was way more interested in sport than study <laughs> yes. and I didn't get into physio, so I started doing um, the Bachelor of Applied Science in Human Movement. But as I said before, that was just actually such a blessing. I learned so much that I didn't get in my physio degree. I think it's taught differently now, but um, but I feel like a lot of the physical preparation stuff I learned from that. So I was really grateful. And then I did physio, including honours. Um, my honours supervisor was Professor Jill Cook. Mm but it wasn't in tendons. Um, so I did an injury prevention study um, around, you know, training football players how to land. So that was kind of my first taste of research. And I got to the end of physio and I said to Jill, um, yeah, that was super fun. Thanks for supervising me. You're awesome. I, but I don't want to be a researcher. I want to help people. <laughs> and she said... And she said to me, and she forgets saying this, but she said to me, if you're a physio, you can help the person in front of you. If you're a researcher, you can help many. And that really resonated with me because yeah. I'm like, actually, if we're doing research properly, she's right. Yeah. So, um, I, but I was like, no, nah, I'm not doing research. I want to go be a physio. So I um, worked at a hospital. I volunteered at a footy club. I volunteered in gymnastics because I just wanted to get as much experience as possible. And I really didn't want to, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I didn't exactly know what aerophysio. Sure. I loved neuro. You know, I really enjoyed the camaraderie of being in a hospital system. Um, private practice terrified me, you know, being by myself with just a patient. And then I ended up landing a gig as the physio with the Lion King for 18 months. Okay. So I traveled to, um, I worked in Melbourne. I traveled to Shanghai and looked after 150 cast and crew. 
And it was just so much fun. Yeah. And it was brilliant. I was like, oh, my gosh, physio has so much opportunity. And um, then I came back and I um, worked at the Australian Institute of Sport and under Professor Craig Purdom. So I've had some very lucky experiences with very generous people, you know, that, that just know so much. And I jumped at every opportunity. I travelled with any sport they wanted to send me away with. And um, I got to go to the Winter Olympics and the Singapore Youth Olympics and the London Paralympics. And I just, I said yes to everything. Yeah. And then um, I got engaged, my, hus- my now husband and I were doing the long distance thing and we got engaged and I moved back to Melbourne, started working at the ballet as a physio and doing a few bits and pieces. And Mike, I don't know about you, but every now and then I sort of get itchy feet. And when I get itchy feet, I start a new project. And for me, that was my PhD. (laughs) Yes, yes. I was like, oh, I don't want to get stale. Um, And so I just started, you know, on the the PhD journey and had my two boys while I was doing my PhD. But yeah, just wanted to still stay working as a physio. So it was super busy, but people made out like you have to choose. And I don't, I don't agree. Yeah. I really like that. I think you can manage it. Yeah. I really like that. And it's so funny that you say that. I had this similar discussion when I was finishing my master's. And uh, I actually had an Australian as my master's uh, supervisor when he was here. His name is Dr. Robert Newton. He's in Perth now. But I just remember having this discussion with him. And I'm like, I don't want to do research. Like, I like coaching too much. And it's so refreshing that Jill told you that. Because, yeah, when you take a step back and you think, wow, you can help one or you can help many. And I don't think like you, you said, I don't think you need to choose. Maybe you can dabble and do both. And so I think that's such a powerful way to look at things. And, and also to your point, you know, when you're working, um, you know, with your client, with your athlete, you're constantly doing research because you sort of, you think you have a hypothesis and then you're doing something and you're testing it. And so I think the worlds um, are so naturally aligned because when we're working with people that's you're actually kind of doing an n of one every time yes agreed agreed well obviously you're super well known for knees i would love to talk about knees with you uh i train a lot of basketball players i grew up playing basketball so obviously a pretty important piece of their puzzle right keeping their knees healthy and and we'll talk some patellofemoral pain we'll talk patellar tendinopathy but i think for starters because i like to start ground level assuming somebody knows nothing about this could you just describe the differences between patellofemoral pain and patellar tendinopathy? Because I think a lot of times they get confused or they get, you know, regarded as the same thing. And I think you would agree there or not. So I'd love to hear your that's thoughts on that. That's a great place to start. Yeah, thank you. I, I think that's an excellent question. So the thing about patellar tendinopathy and patellofemoral pain is they have a lot of similarities in terms of things that provoke them. Mm -hmm. So we can see both conditions in our basketball players, for example, because if you change direction, you know, you're loading the patellar tendon, but it's also a lot of force through the patellofemoral joint pain, uh, through the patellofemoral joint. So we can make the mistake, Mike, of saying, oh, you know, jumping athlete, jumper's knee. But what we need to do is really hone in on the details. So if we think, if we start with patellar tendinopathy, Mm -hmm. what we're talking about is a really focal pain at the inferior pole. And I'm talking about really focal pain under load, not with palpation. So when you poke a tendon, lots of tendon, lots of things, um, a tendon can be sore when lots of things are kind of the culprit. So 
tendons are sore in patellofemoral pain. That's been shown in research. They're sore in osteoarthritis. And so palpation, first of all, is not diagnostic. That's my first key message. So when we ask people where their pain is, we mean when they load, when they jump and land. So patellar tendinopathy doesn't um, move around or spread. It stays in that one spot. And um, that's a really important point because the people that have patellar tendinopathy are provoked by activities where they use their tendon like a spring. So in basketball, that's our pull-up jump shot. That's our big lunging change of direction. But, you know, it's jumping, but it's not just running down the court. Yeah. So the devil's in the detail. So I might ask a player, you know, if you're just running, you know, up and down the court, do you get pain versus if they're doing work in the quarter court and they're doing far more change of direction? So, so the reason why that's important is someone with patellar tendinopathy, they're provoked by energy storage loads, but the converse of that is they're not provoked by slow and static loads. So I can instantly start someone with patellar tendinopathy on an isometric or an isotonic, heavy, because it's not hard for the tendon, might be hard for the muscle, and they won't be provoked. That's actually my start point. So yeah. they're loads that I can provide. Whereas patellofemoral work, Pain can be more diffuse, it can move around, it can spread, and it can be provoked by static or slow loads. Because if you think of someone on a leg extension, the patella, um, the patella can have a lot of contact with the back of the joint and yes. the pressure can be quite irritating. So what I want to do with someone with patellar tendinopathy is get them going on isometric and isotonic, but patellofemoral point patellofemoral pain, I have to work out my start point. There's also differences in uh, how they jump. We see in the research people with patellar tendinopathy don't really have that hip involvement, whereas patellofemoral pain, you get that real valgus. Mm -hmm. So we need far more attention in our rehabilitation around the hip and the glutes as well. Um, so if I was going to sort through all that clinically, my questions are almost what loads don't provoke you. So someone with um, knee pain, does it hurt when you just run? Won't hurt, won't hurt a patellar tendon, might hurt the patellofemoral joint. Mm. Does it hurt when you cycle? Won't hurt patellar tendon, might hurt patellofemoral joint pain. Because a lot of the things like changing direction will hurt both. So you've really got to delve delve into the detail. And, and I agree with you, it's critical we separate them. In the early stages, people with patellofemoral joint pain can often do really badly with a tendon program. At the end of rehab, we want both of them to be strong and springy. So it doesn't matter at the end. It matters as for our way in. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think it was actually Jill Cook. I don't remember what podcast it was on, but it, it was a, a couple years ago now. I think I listened to it and she said, one of the like most clearly delineating things, she said, it's not universal, but she said, starting point, are they young jumping males? And if so, probably look at tendons, right? And because that's just such a big point. She's like, if a 40 or 50 year old athlete comes to me, unless they're playing basketball or something where they're doing a lot of change of direction, a lot of times it's these young guys that are doing a lot of jumping that are having the most tendon issues. You've nailed it because they're the group of people that can use their patellar tendon as a spring. Mm -hmm. As we get older, we just don't. Yeah. Um, so um, I, I joke around and people might have heard me say this, but a few years ago I had an orthopedic surgeon ring me and say, I've got a 65-year-old um, male swimmer with patellar tendinopathy and my husband, who's a landscape 
gardener said, no, you don't. Like <laughs> even he knows. Right. Like I don't, I don't care how hard you push off the wall. You are not highly loading your tendon. Right. So being being a male jumping athlete is um, gives you a high index of suspicion. But actually, Maddie Hannington, um, who's uh, just graduated with her PhD, did this wonderful research um, with an NBA grant that we had, and we found that even the incidence of uh, patellotendinopathy in young jumping male athletes is actually really low. Patellofemoral really? joint pain is rife. So mm. don't assume jumping athlete, they're, they're far more likely right. to rule it in, but it's not a given. Wow. So the, again, it comes down to your assessment process and asking the right questions then, huh? Very much, very much. Yep. Interesting. Agree. Okay. Well, let's dive in on this because patellofemoral pain is something that my business partner, he's a physical therapist. Obviously, I see quite a bit of it in the young athletes, the older athletes that I've worked with. And there's tons of research out there. It's impossible to keep up with all of it now. 20 years ago, it was a little bit easier, but there's a lot out there. And one of the things that we have seen over the years is that a lot of times patellofemoral patients have associated hip issues, right? And one of the things that's interesting is some people will say, well, the hip issue starts before the pain. And others will say, oh, the hip issues don't start until after the pain. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because I'm assuming you're probably way more well-read on the patellofemoral pain uh, research than I am. I think the more I read, the more confused I get, Mike. Oh, I'm okay. with you. Okay, good. Uh, so I, I, don't think, I don't think we know. And I think the only way to do that would be to do a really massive long-term study where you'd need a lot of people and some of them would get patellofemoral pain and then you'd sort of look at stuff at at baseline. Right. So I don't think we understand the the chicken and the egg. We definitely see above and below the knee um, in, you know, the, in clinical practice that we need to do something about it. So a good example of below the knee is the soleus actually decelerates the tibia. So if you have a basketball athlete with anterior knee pain, tendon or joint, the soleus is so important because as they change direction, it decelerates the tibia to allow them to spring back in the other direction. Otherwise, the front of the knee just takes all the load. So there's, there's a, a real lack of research on the calf, I think, um, in both conditions. Um, it's good people are thinking about the hip and not just you know quad and stuff, but don't forget the calf. Yeah, it's such a great point. And funny, because again, when I was taking anatomy, and you know, uh, again, our curriculum was a lot different 20 plus years ago, right? You maybe learned gastroc and the Achilles tendon, but nobody was really talking about soleus, soleus, no. however you want to pronounce it. Nobody was talking about it. But it's like I talk to people like you that are looking at knee pain and knee dysfunction. Soleus is a problem. Uh, I actually just talked with another gal who's very focused on the foot, uh, Courtney, and she's talking about the importance of soleus in gait, right? And same thing, being able to slow down that tibial translation and lots of ways you can think about it, whether it's absorbing force, distributing force, but it's a pretty big deal and something that a lot of people I don't think have talked about until the last couple of years. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. And we know that you pick up soleus and gastroc in a standing straight leg calf raise. There's good yep. research on that. But one of the benefits of adding a seated calf raise is about the joint angle and that that kind of, um, you know, specificity. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I think both are really important. And, you know, it's so interesting if you'll in allow me to bang on about the calf for a second longer. Yes. The... Um, 
when we think about how important the calf is, so when you land from a jump, you know, 60% of your landing energy is absorbed below the knee. So it's predominantly calf. You've obviously got your foot spring and long toe flexors, but it's predominantly calf. So it's just so important for shock absorption and performance. So when we're really thinking about that, most of our athletes actually need uh, calf endurance, the ability to do it repeatedly. They also need standing strength to really yes. um, highlight that straight knee. They need seated strength. And then sometimes they're actually missing the top height of their calf raise. So they can do small range calf raises, but then if they land and they're in more plantar flexion or they're running um you know, on more of the ball of their foot, they yep. can actually put really aberrant loads through the Achilles. So some of my athletes might get four or five calf exercises because none of them replace the other. And and again, if you have someone with knee pain, the devil's in the detail of sorting that stuff out. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, I had Jared Anflick on uh, to talk about the Achilles a while back. And he was like, you kind of got to cover all the bases, right? Standing with knee straight, standing with knee bent, bent knee or seated calf raises, like you kind of got to run the gamut, touch all those bases. Um, but it's also funny because I'm pretty sure this was you uh, from a podcast I listened to. I obviously listened to a lot of podcasts, <laughs> but but I, I'm pretty sure it was you. And part of your diagnostic, you were working with like a ultra marathoner, somebody that was running like 100 miles and literally low hanging fruit. You have them do a standing calf raise and they could do like four. Yeah. You, you have an excellent memory. That's exactly <laughs> what happened. And I, I, I think I said this at the time that people had um, had gone with a, an approach of, okay, we're going to we're going to tape his foot or we're going to try orthotics or, um, you know, we're going to change his running gait. And there were a lot of interventions and the absolute crux of the issue was capacity. Yes. And so this gets back to your first question around physical preparation. He did not have the physical preparation required for the tasks that he wanted to do. So all of the other bits were never going to add up to enough. Yeah. You know, you can change his gait till the cows come home. He's actually not going to be able to run the distance that he wants to run yeah. without injury. Yeah. Let That's... alone perform. Oh. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I couldn't imagine that. So talk to me about loading for someone with patellofemoral pain because, you know, again, in my experience, right, I'm more on the physical prep side, but I get a lot of these people that are in the gray area between physical therapy and seeing me, man, I feel like there's a lot of things or a lot of constraints you sometimes have to put on them early on, right? You have to limit load, you have to limit range of motion. Like, what are your thoughts there? And like, how do you get somebody going with this? Oh, I love that question. What's our way in? Because that's one of the biggest challenges. You know, we know they need exercise and we know they need load. Yeah. But if if it hurts, what are we doing? Right. So okay, so if I've got um if I've got someone with patellofemoral joint pain, what I do in my assessment is my objective assessment is basically my to-do list. So I'm looking at their ability to raise and lower their body on one leg. I'm getting some sort of idea of um half endurance. Mm -hmm. From that, I I infer a little bit about their strength. You know, if you can do four um, calf raises and your endurance is poor, I'm pretty confident that we need to address strength as well. Right. Um, often, uh, I don't test the layers in clinic depending on what I've got access to, but often um, they have a real deficit of their bulk. You can see it and you can feel it. Um, so again, you can infer from a single leg calf raise that they're lacking calf capacity and that you need to address all of those different um, 
issues. You might see a quad deficit. You might assess something clinically like a single leg sit to stand um, from a chair and look at their ability to do it repeatedly. That can be um, influenced by both their strength, but also that might be painful. You can look, depending on their capacity, Mike, you can look at a hop. A hop is a great um, assessment of kinetic chain function. It also gives you that kind of um, that knowledge of what they're doing when they're running. Running is a series of hops, so it's a great assessment. And you can often see their valgus and go, right, I've got some work to do around the hip. So I've got my to-do list from my objective assessment, and then I literally work through it. I go, okay, we need to do seated, single-leg, uh, calf work on each side and I want you to do whatever each side can do because of cross-education you'll actually transfer some strength over so don't try and be even we want you even at the end of rehabilitation not at the start and it'll drag you up quicker so your first exercise is seated calf I'm going to retrain your standing calf if I can add load I do um, particularly for an athlete that's how strong they're going to need to be and where possible I do it single leg but each leg because um, otherwise you just keep unloading the affected Um, knee or the affected side so if I can add load I do I'll get them to do endurance as well and I often get people to do their endurance at night that way they've got the whole night to recover before they need to be on their feet again and um, so in the gym you know they might have their their weighted work later on they've got their endurance then I move up to the quad and I go right how can we get quad and you're right I will limit range first and load second. So I will get them on the leg extension machine and I'll see what they can do and I'll get them to do the heaviest weight they can that's pain-free in whatever range, even if it's very limited. And depending on um, where their irritation is, they will be able to do a range and it might be closer to flexion, it might be closer to extension, it might be right in the middle, I don't care. But rather than doing full range light load, go as heavy as you can and and modify the range. If you need to apply some sort of tape to make that more comfortable, I really like the diamond tape um, where you kind of squish the quad down, you know, squish the bottom bit up and your kneecap sort of sits up. That's how I explain it to people. And there's a couple of YouTube clips of of how to do that. So I don't mind using tape as an adjunct. Um, I definitely modify the range. And then on their other side, I get them to go as heavy as they can, again, for cross-education. And if, um, you know, if you can add a modified range leg press, I do that as well. And then I'll add something else for the hip. So I really like standing cable, you know, abduction, um, a side plank lifting your top leg. You know, you might hit it a couple of different ways. So I'm just trying to work through and find my way in, which often involves tape. Sometimes it's even something like blood flow restriction if we really can't get someone going. Um, so I'm I'm open to what that person needs as a short-term Um, weigh in and you know in season some of the biggest bangs for buck you can get are distributing load through the kinetic chain so if they've got a really really sore knee and you're really struggling with quad smash their soleus because again you'll really unload the front of their knee so you know plug away at their quad but focus above and below if that's where you need to start okay we're going to take a quick break in this episode with dr ebony rio to talk about exerfly Now, as you know, I deal with a lot of athletes, soccer, basketball, they come in with knee issues and we need to get them back out on the field, court or pitch. So a 
Flywheel has been an absolute game changer for us as far as bridging that gap between the slow controlled work in the weight room and the high level return to play activities you need to incorporate in your program to be successful. It really helps bridge that gap. So if you train athletes that are dealing with knee issues, if you need to get them prepared for the eccentric forces they're going to see in their sport, head over to exerflysport.com. Again, exerflysport.com. Learn more about the Exerfly because I guarantee it can make a huge difference in your return to play process. Now, back to our episode with Dr. Evan Erio. I love that, man. And I've got a couple follow-ups from that. So when you're going through your assessment process, I'm, I'm really interested because I feel like people are kind of all over the board now. Um, and I just love to hear what you do. I mean, are you looking at like isometric strength of calves, quads, isokinetics? Are you just literally putting them on a machine and seeing like what they can tolerate? I'm interested in how you do that. Yeah. So um, with my clinician hat on, that's exactly what I do in research. You know, I've got access to really fancy equipment. In the clinic, I don't. It's, you know, me and the athlete, me and the dancer. Um, We do have, um, you know, some some different force plates and stuff, but usually I'm just looking at something really functional. So if I'm looking at calf, I'm looking at their um, calf raise endurance. If I'm looking at... um, quad, I will go and put them on the leg extension machine and see what they can do. To give you an idea in our um, patella tendon study, the average start load was 27 and a half kilos. So what I might do is put someone on that and see what they can do. If it's so easy, I'll go up. If it's too hard, I'll go down and I'll just try and play around with a weight that they can do comfortably. Remembering someone with patella tendinopathy um, it won't it won't provoke them, but someone with patellofemoral pain, I'm really looking for the range and the load that they can tolerate. Love it. And Love same it. with the leg press. I'll get them on the leg press and I'll just see what they can do. Yeah. I mean, I love it. It's super practical, right? Because again... I mean, it, you would need be, to be. <laughs> it would be cool to have all of the, the gadgets and gizmos, but a lot of the people listening to this have a couple pieces of equipment or they can go right. use the selectorized machine. So it's good to hear that people like yourself are using those kinds of tools, right? Absolutely. And for someone with, you know, patellofemoral joint pain, often if you need an isometric for home, you know, something like a wall sit works really well because it's relatively low load because you sort of distribute the load through two legs and lean into the wall a little bit. So if you've got someone with patellofemoral joint pain and you want to try a low load isometric and they don't have any equipment, a wall sit's not a bad option. Yeah, I love it. Okay, one more. Uh, You mentioned BFR. Uh, Mm -hmm. And especially with regards to patellofemoral stuff, I would assume that's beneficial for two reasons. One, it probably uh, reduces mechanical load a little bit, right? So hopefully unloads the joint, but also assuming they have some atrophy there or some muscle wasting, it probably helps bulk that muscle up a little bit too, right? Spot on. So there's good research for BFR when you can't highly load. So what I mean by that is if you can do heavy load, for example, someone with tendinopathy can do heavy load. Heavy load in terms of weight is not hard for a tendon. Tendons are about rate of loading. Mm -hmm. So if the load is static or slow, the tendon's happy. The muscle might be going, oh my gosh, what are you doing? (laughs) But the tendon is happy. And so we don't need BFR for tendinopathy because we actually can load heavy. And um, the research in healthies also shows if you can 
and load heavy, load heavy. Sure. BFR, I think, comes into its own where you have those restrictions. So if someone's cleared to do it, if it's a safe intervention, um, we use it in um, patellofemoral joint pain for the two reasons that you highlighted. Um, it's it's a great it's a great way in. It's a good tool um, as long as it's safe for the person. Obviously, yeah, I love it. Okay, so again, fair warning. I told you up top. I work with a lot of basketball players, so I love talking about tendons, and I'm excited to talk to you about tendons. So, what are some of the biggest functional issues that you see when someone presents with patellar tendinopathy? Oh, great question. So they change their hop strategy. When you hop, if you land with a lot of knee flexion, you actually really use your patella tendon. Same with if you ask them to change your direction. But because they won't want to load their tendon, they hop really stiff through their knee and they they often lose their ability to to cut and change direction. And, you know, we'll say, you know, they turn like a Mack truck. They actually <laughs> don't want to... Um, change direction really quick. But the irony is, Mike, they're the people that get patellar tendinopathy are our good athletes that are really good at change direction, really good jumpers. So it takes away what they're good at. So what functional deficits do you see? You can ask them. Like what? And they will tell you, I've lost jump height. I've lost my agility. And you can test it in the clinic, but athletes are really good um, at telling you what they've lost and, and it's their ability to use their patella tendon as, the, as their excellent spring. Yes, yes. So I know loading a client or an athlete with patellar tendinopathy is quite a bit different versus someone that presents with patellofemoral pain. I think you already talked about it a little bit, but let's really like tease this out here. How would you load or program for someone that presents with patellar tendinopathy versus somebody that presents with patellofemoral pain? Yeah, nice. So below the knee, the interventions are the same. They both yeah. need calf. So they're both getting seated calf. They're both getting standing calf. They're both getting um, calf endurance. And if they don't have top height, they're both getting weight transfers, which is where you go all the way up on two feet. You transfer to one and you try and hold that top height. And that's better than just trying to do a calf raise and sort of, you know, hoik up at the end to get the height. Yep. So we'll actually give those interventions below the knee. Then when I'm going to the quad, so easy. They can do static or slow loading. So I'll get them going um, on isotonics definitely. So three-second concentric, four-second eccentric, really good time under tension, nice and slow, really safe exercise. And if I need to, I'll also add in some isometrics, um, particularly if they're in season. It can work well to have both. Um, but both of those are really safe loads for um patellofemoral, uh, sorry, for patellar tendinopathy. And then if they have any other deficits, you know, sometimes they might have, you know, adductors from a previous injury or they might have something else, you know, you'll add in those things specific to the athlete. But the difference for me is go heavy on their um, leg extension and don't worry if they have a little bit of discomfort to start with in the gym, they, they just have to do it. Yeah, okay. So I grew up in a certain day and age in strength and conditioning, physical preparation, whatever you want to call it, where, you know, like we are coming out of the bodybuilding phase. So now it's very functional, right? If it's not functional, it's not cool. You can't use it. So we squatted, we deadlifted, we lunged, you know, we made fun of anybody that used a machine, right? Leg extension, <laughs> leg curl, Smith machine. Yeah. And it's cool because I'm starting to be around long enough in this industry. You see things come full circle, right? So now we're back to, hey, 
that leg extension that you sold years ago might have been valuable. So could you, <laughs> could you just talk to the role that you feel like isolated work can play in a program, whether it's rehab, return to play, anywhere in that continuum? Yeah, that's a brilliant question. And, and the reason it's a brilliant question is you think about your kinetic chain, so your whole leg and your ability to, you know, put that coordinated spring together. What you need is you need each part to do its bit. Yep. So if you have a deficit, you actually don't address the deficit. So if I have someone with patellar tendinopathy and one of their quadriceps muscles is really atrophied and the other one, you know, is a pretty reasonable size, that person can squat and squat and squat and squat and squat, and they'll actually never address the asymmetry with a double leg bilateral, with a double leg exercise, yeah. unit multi-joint. The only way to address the deficit is to give them an exercise like leg extension where the only thing they can use is their quad. Yeah. And so early on, our programs are not functional address the deficit, and then we put it together as a functional exercise. So someone with patellar tendinopathy might start with really isolated, you know, calf work, the leg extension, you know, we'll get them going on the leg press. And then we go into the walk lunges, you know, then we'll go into some split squat jumps. It will become more um, functional and, and kinetic chain distributed. Sure. But if you don't start with addressing the deficits, you never, you never reach the asymmetries. And this is where I'd like to just highlight for people, we want to be evidence-based, but you should never use a recipe. So in the research for the patellar tendon, there's great research for heavy, slow resistance, but it's double leg. So I don't use the research that's been um, published. I use the concept of heavy, slow resistance, absolutely. Yep. But I do it single leg but each leg and I do it as heavy as each leg can because then you bring in what we know around cross-education and you're actually using evidence but you're putting it together you're not throwing out everything we've done before and grabbing the next thing that you know the next program that someone's researched yeah okay I love that and it's funny it literally goes right into kind of my next question next thought because it was probably the same podcast where you're talking about the guy that could do the four cap raises but you were talking about this very topic, and this is something that was very, I don't know, I don't want to say it was counterintuitive, but it really opened my eyes because for a long time, again, kind of in this gray zone that I live in, if somebody has a functional deficit, my thought process was always, oh, well, I don't want to load the unaffected side more than I do the affected side. And then I listened to this podcast and you're like, no, actually, that's great because it helps things catch up faster. And I was like, wow, that's really smart. And I feel really dumb right now. So could you explain why that works a little bit and why it's beneficial? Yeah, the it is counterintuitive. And it's something that we actually need to tell our athletes because trust me, they will try and be symmetrical. Yes. And even, and what they'll do is detrain their unaffected side. Yes. And actually, Mike, there's some research in the ACL literature in terms of limb symmetry that shows that people achieve limb symmetry because they detrain their other side. So oh they actually gosh. get worse. And so they become more symmetrical. So our stats, you know, what's the symmetry between legs and and we're ticking them off mm. actually what we need is objective measures for each side that, that they need to reach so and i'll tell you what those are in a sec if you like but with the um with the cross education research 
you know, we talk about clinical practice and, and research being separate. Even within research, there's so many um, kind of silos. And so there's great strength and conditioning research and great neuroscience research and great rehabilitation. And actually, we can learn so much from each of them. So the neuroscience research demonstrates substantial up to 20% improvement in strength even in people that have been immobilized. So they've they've put people in plaster casts, strength trained their other side and seen a 20% improvement in the immobilized limb. Wow. So and and you know things like the metronome actually augment cross education but cross education is real and there's been different proposed mechanisms some of that is you know how you know the left part of your brain controls the right side of your body sure. not all of those um not all of the corticospinal neurons um cross sides so some of them stay on that side so some of the theory is that when i'm doing something on one side as my brain's controlling it i'm actually getting some transfer through that sort of cortical pathway mm. so there's lots of different um suggestions, but I don't think we fully understand the mechanism actually, but cross-education is real and your patients and athletes will 100% not know about it. Most clinicians um, don't really know about it. So it's something I say every single time. Yep. Yeah. They'll get there quicker. Use it. Yes. Yes. Well, and I want to circle back too, because something you said a few minutes ago about kind of working around some of these asymmetries. I mean, I see this a lot again, and the people that, you know, maybe they've gone through rehab, they're trying to get back to sport and they still have these functional deficits or they don't feel right. And I'll bring them in. And it's very clear that if you shoot a video of them, right, their strategy between their unaffected and their affected side is totally different. For example, somebody does a, a box landing, right? Or a box, you know, depth jump, whatever you want to call it. And on the unaffected side, it's this blend of ankle, knee and hip flexion, on the affected side, they're not bending their knee at all, right? They're just shoving their hips back. So could you just talk about the role of strategy in the rehabilitation process and maybe how strategy comes into, okay, we, we've rebuilt some of the kinetic chain. How do we rebuild strategy and get them back into kind of, you know, being the athlete that they're used to being again? So if you're really confident that you've addressed the deficits and there's there's no reason for them to keep that strategy from a kind of strength perspective, then what I might do is sort of move more into the motor learning space. Now, the thing about motor learning is the more you can make something a skill and give them um, some constraints around it, the more likely they are to actually change their motor pattern and their strategy. And so um, that's where the metronome can be really useful in terms of um, giving people goals you might give them visual goals. There's actually some fantastic free apps now. So I learned about this at a recent conference and I have no affiliation with these apps, by the way. Um, so one of them is called Switched On and the other one is called Clock Yourself. And they <laughs> offer they offer these um, different exercises with um, where you've got to combine, you know, visual information and auditory information and process and and move in a certain way, but they're a great fun way of getting people to change some strategy because repetition on its own actually doesn't change motor drive. So you can't just keep getting someone to jump off the box. You've got to give them some sort of um, cue or change it in some way. Now, with an athlete, 
the more you can integrate that into the sport, the better. So with a basketball player, if you can make that into a drill, it's gonna you're going to get far more transfer over. And there's good research on that. If you get people to jump off a box and tell them to not, you know, have valgus, they get right. really good at jumping off a box and not having valgus. It doesn't mean that, you know, when they're running around, you've actually changed anything about their pattern. So the integration of that strategy back into their sport and how we do that, that's where I think people like you shine. That's where I think coaches are really creative and um, they can take the physical preparation and the sport and merge it in those steps. But yeah, strategy, the motor control literature says we have to try and make it um, skilled in some way and give give cues. Yeah, I love it. Okay. So to kind of bring all this together, and one thing that I really respect about what you do, you understand like the full width of the spectrum, right? It's not just the the early uh, getting rid of the deficits and the quads and the calves. Like at some point, they have to rebuild these patterns, right? They have to get back and they have to play sport. So I'm always interested when I'm talking to somebody like you, what are some of your big rocks? What are the boxes that you want to check to say, yes, I'm confident this person can go play? Uh, soccer, volleyball, basketball at a high level, you know, we can't always keep somebody 100% healthy, but you feel confident that they can go out there and have a high level of success. Yeah. So the first thing is to um, make sure that everyone is on the same page about what is a win. And a win is if someone's um, symptoms are low and stable and they're performing at a really high level, their pain may not be zero. So that's a really important conversation. If you're able to do everything you want to do and you've got some symptoms, you know, when you first warm up or some symptoms the next day, but it's low and stable, are you happy? Most athletes will take that every day of the week if they can do what they want to do. So pain usually is not what stops them because tenon warms up. It's usually about their performance that they care about. So if you can give them back their function and their symptoms are low and stable, they're usually happy. So that's my first big rock. Make sure everyone is on the same page about what is a win. My second big rock, make sure everyone is on the same page about high tendon load. So high tendon load is about rate of loading. Anything slow or static is easy for a tendon. So we've had a situation in the past, Mike, where an athlete might be taken off their gym program because people are trying to um, trying to rest them and make sure they're okay for games and trainings, they do worse. The gym is critical. They need to be in the gym a couple of times a week um, and they'll be better for it. So making sure everyone knows in the gym that they need to be there, but also understanding again what is high tendon load. If you've got someone with Achilles tendinopathy, for example, they can't just skipping for a warm-up in the gym because that's high tendon load. They're asking their tendon to act like a spring. So they need to do bike or something like that. So uh, know what is a win, know what is high tendon load. The third thing is that everyone agrees on the objective measures that that person needs to return, including the athlete and including the coach and all the stakeholders. And to give you some examples, for a high-level athlete that wants to play a court or a field-based sport, they need to be able to do 30 to 35 single leg calf raises on each leg um, as an endurance measure um, because most of those athletes are running, you know, five plus kilometres a game, sure. sometimes more. Um, then uh, from a strength perspective, we'll often aim for a body weight on top of their body weight in the Smith for four lots of six. For the seated calf raise, it's a bit tricky because the the 
machines are so different and hard to compare, but you sure. want at least three quarters of a body weight in terms of capacity. For a leg press, I want one and a half times body weight, single leg for four lots of six. Wow. So you think of the loads that someone puts through when they jump and land, that's the sort of capacity they need in their kinetic chain. So I have a calf endurance, a calf strength and a leg press objective measure. And that way that person knows and athletes love goals and they know what they need to do. So it's not time-based, it's objective measure-based. And you're saying to them, you do, you do the work. And then what we do is we we then transition them into that function that you talked about. So for someone with patellar tendinopathy, we need to retrain that spring. And what we might do to begin with with our basketball athlete, once they've met those measures, is we might get them to you know run up to a um, uh, like a wall and prop. And so what you're doing is you're storing energy in that patellar tendon, but you're not doing the release. You're not doing a change of direction. Right. So we'll do, or we might do a, a split squat jump and then we'll progress it into the continuous jumps and the change of direction. Yeah. I'm going to rehab a volleyball athlete that needs to jump 300 times in a training session, really different to a basketball athlete that's far yes. more change of direction. So they need jumping, but they need far more change of direction. Mm. So you add in all the components and then what you do is you listen to the tendon the next day. That's when the tendon's going to tell you if it's happy. So we've got our, our strength in. We've started some spring. We're going to listen the next day. If your tendon pain is low and stable and it's the same, that's a happy tendon. Keep loading. If you're not sure and you had a little bit of a flare, the next time you do that session, just repeat the session. You don't have to rest. You stay in the gym. No matter what, they stay in the gym. If you've flared them a lot, then the next time they do that session, they need to change something. They need to do fewer you know, repetitions of whatever you did. And then we count, we build numbers and we build them back to the sort of numbers you know they need to be able to do in a training session and then get them into some part training. As I said, right at the start for a basketball athlete, we might let them scrimmage and play full court before they do, you know, stuff in the quarter court just because of the change of direction. So knowing your sport's really important. You might limit someone just jacking up threes if they've got a sore tendon, but, you know, they can do lots of other, you know, work around the around the key. So yeah. knowing your sport and breaking down what they need and then building up, that's why that's why this is so fun because it's so individual. Yes. And you you're just progressing that person back to what they need. Do you ever have I don't even remember your question. Did I answer no, it? No, you you did brilliantly, brilliantly. Do you ever have issues either with coaches, with players convincing them that loading is actually important in this case? Yeah, you can. People can be fearful of of loading. Um, they might have been told they need to rest. They might have been told they have tendonitis, which is not only an inaccurate term, it's actually really unhelpful because if people think something's inflamed, they think the the underlying kind of mechanism is that or the underlying treatment is they need to do something passive like rest, ice anti-inflammatories. So our language is really important because every time we choose a word, people are updating their understanding of what they think they need to do about it. It's really good yes. research in that. Um, so avoid terms like tendonitis because you, if you go, have you got patellar tendonitis, please go and do this exercise program. There's a mismatch in their brain. And similarly, Mike, with um, we have to be really careful with um, the term tendon tear. Tears are actually really, really difficult to... Um, pick up on imaging because they, 
you can't distinguish them from tendinopathy is the problem because all you're doing is looking at whether or not you have signal or no signal and then you're making an, an, an assumption based right. on what you're seeing. And when these people go to surgery, we're actually no better than flipping a coin. But if you tell someone they've got a tendon tear, there's no way they want to load it. So it's a really, um, you know, the language about it, particularly what people have been told, um, can be really difficult to convince them that they need to load. So we spend a lot of time on language. And when I'm listening to someone, I, I steal a little idea from David Butler. So he's a pain scientist mm -hmm. and he talks about e-flags education flags. Okay. And so if someone goes, yeah, you know, I had some imaging and they said my tendon was stuffed, you know, there's all these tears and it had inflammation. I write a big E because I'm going to need to come back to that before yes. I write their loading program. Yes. So if they've got some hesitancies around loading, I want to know why so that we can work through that together and be sure about what is really safe loading for them and how we're going to make sure they're safe along the way by making sure they've got capacity. You know, one of the reasons, I, you know, we're trying to hold you back from sport yet is, you know, if you can only do this much, a, you won't perform as well, but B, you're just at more risk because you're putting more load through than what you're sort of currently capable of. Yeah. It's just so refreshing to have these kinds of discussions because, again, I think back in the day we were so siloed, right? S&C was in their little neck of the woods and physios, PTs were in theirs. And, you know, again, just thinking about the evolution of where physical therapy has gone, you know, now we're talking about loading. It's not TheraBands and, you know, sets of 100. Uh, yeah. I know, right? <laughs> I wish they could have I just seen made a face. face for anyone that couldn't see it. Um, yeah. It's just cool we're, to see the evolution. We're talking so about cool. loading and building capacity and making more robust individuals, not just burning out on sets of 100 with tubing activities. Absolutely. And, you know, people say to me, um, oh, I've been doing, you know, calf work with TheraBand. It's nowhere near enough load when you right. consider just... The, the human body and walking around and the capacity that you need. And that's true of our, of our older people as well. You actually need the ability to lift and lower your body weight so that you can step off a curb and yeah. not rupture your Achilles or walk downstairs. We actually need amazing function as humans, let alone if we're asking our athletes to go above and beyond that. So I, I'm with you. We are, we are load obsessed. And I'm so lucky in my workplaces because strength and conditioning physio is so integrated. So I, I, I work, I see almost all of my athletes with the S&C um, relevant to their sport at the VIS and the S&C at ballet. Like we just work so closely and that's, that's a dream. That's how it should be. Uh, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And ultimately when you do that, it starts, everybody's on the same page from the start. We all know it's not about us. It's about the athlete. And ultimately the athlete gets the best possible outcome, right? And you just learn so much from each other. I've yes. learned so much working with the S&Cs. It's brilliant. And they have such an amazing vocabulary and repertoire of exercises that that I love learning from as well. I'm like, ooh, I might use that next time. And it's great. <laughs> I love it. Awesome. Okay, big question time, Ebony. If you could alter the space-time continuum and give young <laughs> Ebony Rio one piece of advice, what would it be? Don't worry about not having a job. Oh, wow. I was so okay. <laughs> I was so worried. I've Yeah, I was so worried about um, not having a job that I loved. And yeah, and I think 
or having to pick between, you know, physio and research. So I think um, young Ebony Rio should just trust that the pieces will fall into place and, you know, she'll end up doing something she loves and she's very lucky. Yes. I, it's not the most popular answer, but some derivative of that has come up a lot lately. Has with, it? That's yeah, interesting. Yeah. yeah. A What's a people. popular answer? Give me an example. I like mean, what, what advice would you give young Mike? <laughs> um, very similar. I, uh, I, I took a job right out of college. I, first off, I sat for like six months on the sideline. I didn't get a job forever. So I was like substitute teaching and doing other stuff. Yep. But then I took a job. But literally the week that I took the job, the Indianapolis Colts, which is a really popular NFL team, it's my hometown team, uh, offered me an internship. And I said, oh, no, I can't possibly take a six month unpaid internship, you know. And so I went and worked at this place. And long story short, it wasn't awesome. <laughs> but man, how how I wish I would have had more foresight to just say, hey, man, take out a loan, do something like that six month window could be invaluable for the rest of your career. So, man, I don't know if I've ever had somebody turn the tables on me on my own show. That's quite impressive. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite impressive. But yeah. I like your answer. I hope it's popular. Yeah, well, yeah, I hope so too. But yeah, it's I think that's common though. When you're young, yeah. you've spent X amount of years, X amount of dollars on getting a, an education. You want to immediately go out and get that dream job. And that's partly why I asked that question up top too. Tell me about your career path. Because a lot of times we assume you get a degree and then you go start working in your dream job, right? And it just doesn't always work like that. It's a long and winding path. And I think most of us end up where we want or need to be, but it's never direct and it's never as fast as you want it to be. Absolutely. I've, yeah, I graduated a very long time ago. So yes. <laughs> Me too. Me too. <laughs> okay. Last but not least, lightning round, four fairly short questions. Your answer can be as long or short as you like. So yeah. number one, how is the weather down there right now? It's Is it still summer? Yes. It's still summer. Today is 23, tomorrow's 30 and Sunday is 33. Okay. It's fabulous. I love it. I love the heat. Yes. And you're Melbourne, right? I'm in Melbourne, yeah. So, you know, in typical Melbourne style, it'll be raining and 10 degrees on Monday. (laughs) (laughs) We're just so used to it. Yes, yes. (laughs) Number two, uh, somewhat in jest, but how do we get you active on Twitter again? You're on Twitter. I don't think you posted since I think it was like 2016 or 2017. How do we get you back? Um, I don't know. I, yeah. (laughs) I don't think you will. I'm sorry. Oh, man. Just, I love like smart people that are posting on social media. So, all right. I'll, well, I'm gonna have I, to... I, down, I downloaded Instagram and yeah. then I just went, nah, nah. And I just deleted it before I even set up an account. <laughs> <laughs> well, I knew you weren't on Instagram. So I figured maybe I'm... we get you back on Twitter. But all right, maybe in a couple of years, I'll come back to that. Uh, <laughs> number three, pretty broad here. But what's the most impactful book? or books that you've read in the past one to two years? Ooh. I, I love reading and I actually joined a book club in COVID, an okay. online book club, just to read books that I was, you know, I wouldn't have otherwise come across. Yeah. I actually, I listened to an audio book. Um, I think it's called Habit Stacking. And okay. I really liked it because it was, it was talking about if you want to, you know, if you want to run a marathon, it's actually not, 
the way you get there is to put your shoes on. And so it talked about really practical things like how do you how and 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 so I do that now. So in the morning, if I'm going to go to the gym, I pack my work clothes mm. and I leave out, you know, my shoes and and workout stuff because then you get up and you've got it on. And his argument was if you've got it on, you're probably going to do it because you've gone to the trouble of putting your sneakers on. Right. So then the hard bit is putting your sneakers on. And once they're on, you're likely to do it. So there's all these strategies for if you want to break a habit, you know, how would you replace it with something? If you want to start a habit, how would you do it? And it's, I really liked it, Mike, because it's not just, you know, you've got to do the same thing for 30 days. It actually gave really practical tips as to how you might do it. Um, And then there was another book and I can't remember the name of it, but it talked about um, little chunks of things. So if you've got, you know, these tasks, you know, two minutes too easy and you might have a list of them and while you're waiting for your coffee, you might get rid of three tasks on your list. Oh, and for okay. busy people that are, um, you know, juggling life and work and family, and we all are, yeah. sometimes you've got those little life admin tasks. And so I just keep a little list of, you know, all the things I've got to do. I, I've got to book my blood donation. I've got to do this, this, this. Yeah. And while I'm waiting for my coffee, I'm like, oh, I can get my two minutes too easy tasks done. Okay. And then later on, it doesn't become a big thing on your to-do list. Oh, I like that. I like that. Uh, Something similar that I picked up, my friend, Pat Rigsby, he's like a business advisor, just smart, all-around guy. Uh, He talks about the 10-minute sprint. So similar to that, right? At the end of your day, you jot down all the things that would be super easy, and then you set a timer for 10 minutes, and you knock as many of those things out at the end of your day. Oh, I like that. Yeah, it's good. It's the same kind of idea, right? Yeah. Super practical, but that way, you know, at the end of the week, you don't have like 50 (laughs) things that uh, could take you one to two minutes. You just kind of knock them out as the week goes. And you're right. All of a sudden you need to find an hour. And who's got an hour? I know, um, (laughs) But yeah, I I love books. Are you reading something at the moment? Can you recommend something for me? Oh my gosh. Uh, I'll give you something that you might interest you and it might interest the listeners. Uh, Somewhat from our cloth, have you read a book called The Tale of the Dueling Neurosurgeons? No, but I'm going to see if Audible have it. What is it? The Tale? Tale of the Dueling Neurosurgeons, I believe it, is the title of it. It's one of those, it's kind of like pop neuroscience-y, but it's told with like really brilliant stories. Fantastic. Thank like, you. Like, I really enjoyed it. It may be under your threshold for intelligence, but for somebody at my level, it was it was pretty <laughs> good. It was very, it's very entertaining. It's like, oh, this is the part of the brain and... You know, it'll tell a story about, oh, this happened to this person and this is what happened. And so it it's like neuroscience, but wrapped into these really well-written stories. So Brilliant, which yeah. is actually a really clever neuroscience trick yeah. to retain the information. I Absolutely. love it. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's so cool. Yeah, it's Brilliant. a good one. Oh, thanks for the tip. Awesome. Yes, you're welcome. Okay. Last but not least, number four, what's next for Ebony Rio? What are you working on? What are you um, excited about? Anything? I was going to say, I'm going to go and get another coffee. No, you're yeah. meaning what, what's the coffee of choice? What's the coffee uh, of choice? La- large skinny latte, extra okay. shot. Okay. I like it. Like, And when I mean large, I like jumbo, like <laughs> massive. Yeah. And how many of those a day? Don't ask that question. Okay. That's not your <laughs> question. Too um, personal. Sorry. <laughs> No, I I was going to say my husband might listen, but he's not going to listen to this with <laughs> the sound of my voice. Um, so what's next? I oh, there's so many cool things actually. Where do I start? We have amazing research 
to benefit um, young dancers and young athletes. I'm involved in, uh, so we were awarded a um, IOC Centre of Research Excellence with the Australian Institute of Sport, the Victorian Institute of Sport and La Trobe Sport and Exercise Medicine Research Centre for female athletes. So we're going to be doing some really cool stuff to help um, health, wellbeing and performance for women. The ballet stuff, I'm just so excited about. We're going to be collaborating with um, other ballet companies, other ballet schools, again, to benefit, you know, elite dancers, but also our, our young dancers and dancers in the community. And then every single time I do something, Mike, I think, how can I translate that to, to someone in the community? Mm-hmm. Like, can this be used by someone else? Can this benefit someone else? So what's next for me is to make sure that I continue to do re- like really clinically focused research, but that we're better at getting it out, which is why I love doing stuff like this because the average time to change something after someone does research is like seven years. You know, it takes years to get stuff published and, you know, and then it's got to be disseminated. You know, the only advantage of Twitter (laughs) is that um, things can be kind of spread it's the immediacy, um, more right? quickly. It's the immediacy. Um, and, and stuff like this is great because, you know, you can have a chat and kind of get into the nuances of of the research. And, you know, research, you've got to ask such specific questions, but, you know, humans are not that straightforward. The person in front of you has a lot of other complexities. As you said, they might have fear of loading. Yes. So it doesn't matter how good your exercise program is, that's not going to be the best place to start. So, yeah, what's next for me? I think just keep doing what I'm doing. Well, hopefully you don't get bored. You might pick up another PhD or, you know, a fourth job. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Even you have limits, right? Everyone has limits. Yes. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, Ebony, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. It's always challenging, you know, when people are in different time zones or on different sides of the world. So I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to do this. I know you got a lot going on. Where can my listeners find out more about you and the great work you're doing? other than not Twitter. I was going to say not Twitter. Not Twitter. <laughs> um, oh, I, I joined LinkedIn. Oh, Does that okay. count? That counts. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Um, I mean, I don't really post. I just like other people's posts and kind of stalk other people, but yeah. maybe I'll get better at posting. Um, I If you go through the Laysom site, the Latrobe Sport and Exercise Medicine Research site, we have um, we have resources up there. We have access to our papers. Um yeah. Where can people find out more about the research? Probably probably through the Laysom website. I know, okay. maybe I need to be better at social media. Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> no. No, Lee, look, <laughs> if you're going to be on social media, LinkedIn for somebody of your status and being in the world that you My are, link, status. LinkedIn is definitely <laughs> the most appropriate. You know, I don't expect you on TikTok. I don't expect you there. I don't I don't even know what TikTok is. Yeah. That's really showing my age. I that, actually don't even know. That's okay. That's 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 where is. I draw I my line. As an entrepreneur, <laughs> okay. I have to be on social enough. Um, but yes, but I have my TikTok. limits too. Not TikTok. Got it. So, well, <laughs> Ebony. Right. I won't download TikTok then. No TikTok. No TikTok. <laughs> if you're going to go anywhere, Instagram. Instagram. I think you would be well received there. But regardless, Ebony, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for your time. I truly appreciate it. Thank you. You promised me a fun chat and I had a fun chat. So thank you. You're welcome. All right, my friend, that does it for this week's episode with Dr. Ebony Rio. Really hope you enjoyed it. She is such a joy to talk to. She is so smart. Man, 
I found myself almost like Dr. Courtney last week, where I'm simultaneously like trying to host the show, listen to what she's saying, take notes. So, I mean, you know it's a great show when you're trying to take notes as you're hosting. So I can tell you for a fact, this is going to be one I go back and listen to two three, maybe even four times because there's so much great information in there, whether we're talking about assessing the knee joint and its function, return to play protocols, isolation training, the role of all those little muscles around the knee, such great information. And I really hope you enjoyed it. So if you did enjoy it, now I got a favor to ask. Actually, one of two. First off, if you really enjoyed the show, if you're not already a subscriber, go to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Play, the Amazon store, wherever you consume podcasts, go there right now, hit the subscribe button so you know each and every week when a new episode drops. If you are already subscribed, thank you, man, go one step further and share this episode with somebody that might benefit from it. Maybe it's an athlete you know who's struggling with knee pain. Maybe it's a coach, trainer, or a rehab professional that sees a lot of people that are dealing with knee pain. Regardless of where you're at, somebody in your life is struggling with this. And as trainers, coaches, rehab professionals, we have to better arm ourselves with high quality information. Dr. Ebony Rio, absolute boss, love everything that she's doing. And man, if we can get her message out there, Dr. Courtney's message, all these great people that we have on the show, if we can share their message, man, we can make our space so much better as a result. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you. And we'll be back next week with our next episode. Take care.